Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and welcome to the Space Nuts podcast, the podcast that looks at uh, all things astronomy. Well, not all of them, because it would take us lifetimes. But we've uh, got three choice subjects for you today. And joining me to uh, discuss these things is astronomer Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. One day we should cover all things astronomy, shouldn't we? We should, we should do the whole thing. We should just start... <laughs> And just keep going until it's all done. Yeah, until we die. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I reckon if we did it till we died, we'd still probably only scratch the surface. We would, that's right, absolutely. Now, today we're going to be talking about uh, three rather fascinating things, and uh, they've been looking at ways of removing space debris, junk, junk that humans have put in orbit around the planet. Uh, they're about to uh, launch an experiment uh, looking at four possible ways of eliminating space junk and it's something you and i've talked about before and it's a fascinating little topic and, and some of their ideas are quite amazing uh, x marks the spot uh, that is a well-known fact uh, in terms of uh, various galaxies uh, but they've never been able to find ours we're talking about galactic center but um, now i think uh, i think they have and we're also going to look at a, a, a physical problem that astronauts are starting to report, and that is um, vision impairment as a result of zero-G exposure for long periods of time. This is quite, um, quite scary when you think about some of the things we're planning for the future of space flight. So uh, all those topics coming up, Fred. But before we get onto that, a question without notice. Ah. I had a friend send me a photo yesterday of a smoke trail in the sky. Uh, now, it looked like it was moving towards the ground. And I sent him an email and said, might have been a meteorite. And he argued that it wasn't a meteorite, it was a meteor. Now, <laughs> you and I have walked this path once before or twice before or maybe more. Meteor or meteorite or possibly both? <laughs> yeah, possibly both. Um, so the terminology is, is fairly clear. Um, if you've got a piece of small piece of rock or a, or even a speck of dust uh, in space that potentially could collide with the Earth's atmosphere, it's called a meteoroid. So a meteoroid right. <laughs> sounds a bit like a painful complaint, but a meteoroid <laughs> is is the thing before it hits the atmosphere. When it's flashing through the atmosphere and we see it as a shooting star, it's a meteor. Uh, but if it hits the ground, uh, it is a meteorite. So a yeah. meteorite is, is one that actually makes it to the ground. Most of them don't, of course. They burn up in the atmosphere. We call them meteors. Yeah. But a meteorite would survive long enough to, to, to reach the ground. So this could have been a meteorite because, I mean, a smoke trail is a pretty significant um, telltale sign, although it might have been a piece of an old rocket or something too. 
I'm surprised uh, because um, things like that are relatively rare. Usually when you see something entering the atmosphere, whether it's um, space junk re-entering or whether it's a natural thing like a, a, a meteor, uh, what you see is the flash of light. Sometimes you will see, if it's a very bright one, uh, sometimes you'll see a, a, a glowing trail in the sky where the plasma, where the, the basically the passage through the atmosphere has excited the atoms of the atmosphere and caused it to turn into a plasma, which is sort of still glowing. Um, smoke trails are less common, though. Uh, so I was quite interested to hear, uh, to hear that. Um, and, I, you know, it, the problem is you can never really... Uh, tell uh, people use different terminology to describe different things and I'm wondering what I might have thought it was if I'd been standing beside your friend mm. well I'll send you the photo and you can, oh, okay. can analyse it, uh, I suspect he might have seen a, a vapour trail from an yeah. airliner uh, that that was the first thing that came to my mind and they look quite curious sometimes especially if you've got um, uh, a contrail that uh, is illuminated by the sun and casting its shadow on a lower deck of clouds. You, you often get a dark shadow on a, uh, which looks, you know, it makes the whole thing look very spooky. Now that you've said that, that sounds like what it might be. Yeah. But anyway, I'll send it to you and have a yeah, look. Yeah, send it and I'll, oh. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but right now I'm claiming victory. Now, um, let's move on to this, uh, this issue of space debris. Um, thousands upon thousands of tonnes of junk is uh, currently in space, along with working equipment. And, of course, uh, they do worry about collisions and damage, and uh, we're not talking cheap hardware. This has cost billions of dollars over many years to put up there for, for good reasons. Uh, now they've come up with a concept that's been on show in the UK uh, to, uh, to get rid of it. And they're looking like a, uh, doing a, a launch and an experiment uh, of different junk removal methods next year. Indeed, that's right. You're quite right about it being tons of stuff. The, the, the estimate is that the 7,000 tons of space junk uh, that's human-made space junk that's not actually doing anything useful uh, in orbit around the Earth. Um, the, the, the statistics are they're really quite daunting. Um, it, there's something like 30,000 bits of junk bigger than uh, 10 centimetres across, which are tracked, uh, and so we know where they are. And so um, if, for example, one of those bits is uh, seen to be approaching the International Space Station, uh, there will be a change of slight change of orbit for the space station to put it out of the way. So that's all relatively well controlled. But the it's the stuff that's smaller than that. And this is the small bits of debris, the things that range down to the size of a fleck of paint. Uh, one estimate I've seen says maybe 170 million pieces of space debris less than one centimetre across. And that's a uh, an estimate, of course, based on statistical studies. The problem with space junk is that it tends to multiply. And if you've got, um, uh, you know, for example, two, two spacecraft that collide, what happens is that you generate a huge cloud, well, two, in fact, two huge clouds of smaller pieces, which basically just carry on along the original orbits of the two spacecraft that have collided. This happened uh, back in 2009 with a collision between, um, uh, actually, it was an active uh, uh, communications satellite, Iridium-33, and a defunct 
Russian satellite, Cosmos 225, they collided at a speed of something like 11 kilometers per second over the North Pole and resulted in, in two plumes of debris uh, encircling the Earth. And they, of course, can then collide with other stuff. The problem is always the velocity with which these things collide. The, yes. You know, they're, they're, they can be up to 16 kilometers per second, and that is highly destructive. So the question has been raised over a number of years, it has to be said, what do we do about this? Because uh, some, some uh, pundits uh, see a threat that if this kind of domino effect continues, we might find we go through a, a, you know, almost a generation without access to space. And that's really quite a serious issue. So a number of um, organizations around the world have proposed solutions to this, or at least studies that, that might lead to solutions. One of them, by the way, Andrew, is in Australia. The uh, SERC, the Space Environment Research Center, which is based at Mount Stromlo in Canberra, they are looking at the possibility of using lasers to, to, to essentially nudge things into orbits that will bring them down so they'll, they'll burn up in the atmosphere harmlessly. So is it, is it easier to bring them down than it is to, say, send them out? Yeah, it is. Um, that's that's the the aim is to try and uh, change the orbit of one of these spacecraft so it so it burns up in the atmosphere because then you've got rid of it, uh, you've vaporized it essentially. The bigger ones uh, may survive that atmospheric fall and and land on the Earth's surface. Mostly they land on water because most of the Earth's surface is water. Um, some of the bigger ones have what what are called controlled reentry. Some of them don't because they've then they're defunct, they're not contacting anymore. So these are a problem one. You've just got to hope they hit the Pacific Ocean or something like that. Um, anyway, the reason why this story is in the news is that uh, a group at the University of Surrey uh, have uh, proposed and indeed are going to launch a spacecraft uh, early next year uh, which will test out some technologies, uh, as you suggested, to, to perhaps try and mitigate this problem of space junk. They're not the only ones. In 2018, the, uh, the uh, Swiss will launch a spacecraft called Clean Space One, uh, which is... <laughs> we, uh, yeah, look, I'm not getting into the naming no. <laughs> issue again, but... Clean Space One Clean is space also space to space. test some technologies. The, 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 the Surrey one going up next year is called, wait for it, Remove Debris. So, you know, they're, they're, these are names that basically tell it like it is. <laughs> no mucking around with that. No mucking around, that's right. <laughs> Remove Debris uh, is the one that, um, that has been in the headlines this last week or so. And so, it's, got, it's got some pretty significant backing. I mean, they've got um, some big names uh, behind this. Airbus, for example. Oh yeah, and uh, space uh, European Space Agency, mm. um, uh, uh, you know, involvement as well. I mean, it's it, it sort of um, it really behoves the space agencies to be involved with this kind of project because um, uh, it's their by by and large it's their spacecraft that are going to be damaged by uh, by space junk impact. So um, yes, the space agencies are looking very kindly on this kind of project. So the Europeans uh, are putting quite a bit of funding into the Surrey uh, University of Surrey mission. Uh, the the, uh, the removed debris satellite will take up some smaller spacecraft, things things we call um, CubeSats, which are 
uh, little, well, cube-shaped satellites. They're about 10 centimeters on a side, uh, quite compact, sometimes called nano nano cubes. Uh, the um, the remove, remove debris parent ship, you might call it, uh, has a number of these things which it will jettison and then try and get them back in order to demonstrate the technologies that you would need to uh, you know, to capture a, a piece of space junk. And the, 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 the three principal technologies are, first of all, um, a, a net, uh, a net that might uh, be used to ensnare uh, a, bit, a bit of space junk. That actually is, I think, one of the most promising technologies. Right. But they're also proposing a harpoon. Mm. Uh, so so you, you basically spike your, your bit of debris and then haul it in. Um, uh, like the old, you know, whale whale fishing. Yeah. The the, the problem with that though is um, if you hit the wrong spot, you could just bounce straight off. Yeah, you could, and 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 if you really hit the wrong spot, you could, you know, break it up into pieces that then become themselves bigger uh, problems. Big, bigger problems. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and the final one is to try and attach uh, to um, spacecraft a, a, a kind of solar sail, a large membrane that will expand and that will um, basically uh, be uh, it will catch the solar radiation that's the bottom line uh, and um, because of that because of the pressure of the radiation it will change the orbit enough to bring these things down now that's a tricky one because you've got to you've got to somehow attach that it's a much that's a much easier one to uh, to build into spacecraft from the beginning, this is something that was suggested actually a decade ago, that all future spacecraft should have uh, a kind of, um, maybe a sail of some kind. One proposal was a giant helium balloon that will blow up to 30 or 40 metres in diameter. And, and because of that, the breaking effect of that on the um, uh, rarefied atmosphere above the Earth would bring it down. So these are all technologies that are quite actively being pursued. But I suppose the the, the big thing about removed debris is it's actually going to test some of these out. So we might see whether there's any chance that they will work. Yes, fingers crossed. Uh, and, and when you when you think about the the cost of putting satellites into space uh, and and the, sometimes the cost of maintaining these things, uh, it's probably not going to be that big an additional cost to put a system in that will ultimately deal with it once it's spent and bring it back down to earth in some form or another exactly that's right in fact that's um very much the current thinking um i understand that the french government has recently mandated that um, any spacecraft has to have uh, a, a, a basically a, a means of bringing it back down to earth within 25 years so that you can't just put something up there that's the problem over over the uh, 50 odd years of the space age the space has been unregulated people have put up whatever they like um, and without any thought to you know to the to the mess that it's creating in earth orbit mm, of course it won't be an absolute solution we're only talking bulky items here the the really tiny stuff yeah, it'll just uh, it. yeah, it'll just have to keep floating around, and eventually, I suppose, it will skip off the Earth's atmosphere or burn up or, or yes, whatever. It, but it, yeah, most of these low Earth orbits do decay, so that the, the Earth brings them down. Mm, all right, we'll watch with interest, but early next year they'll be uh, they'll be up there trying these things out. So uh, should be uh, 
Should be rather fascinating. You're listening to Space Nuts with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Roger, and you're live. Stay here, also. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, we're we're going to um, talk about something that you, you read in uh, in pirate stories. X <laughs> X marks the spot, which is usually where the treasure is hidden. In astronomical terms, X marks the centre or the core of galaxies. Now, this is a uh, a known fact, as I understand it, but uh, up until now, we've never been able to find our own X marks the spot galaxy centre. Is that right? Uh, Yes, that's correct. And uh, you're quite right. When we look at um, distant galaxies, uh, and of course galaxies are these huge aggregations of stars and gas and dust, um, something like um, 100 billion stars in a, in, a, you know, in a typical healthily sized galaxy. Ours is probably rather bigger than that. Um, so we see the galaxy as the Milky Way, and that allows astronomers to study uh, uh, basically our, our vicinity in, in the Milky Way galaxy, but also to look towards the centre of our galaxy, which is we see in the constellation of Sagittarius. That's where the Milky Way is at its brightest. Those are the star clouds of the bulge of our galaxy. That's a kind of, uh, you know, a bulge um, that that is the, the central region. Uh, Patrick Moore, that uh, doyen of science communicators, certainly in the 19, uh, in, in, in the second half of the 20th century, uh, Patrick always used to describe spiral galaxies as being shaped like two fried eggs placed back to back. Yes. So you've got the disk of them, and then you've got this core in the middle, the, the, the bulge of the galaxy. And we can see that in our own, in our own galaxy. Mm. But what we do recognise in some other galaxies, and there are hundreds of billions of other galaxies out there, uh, is this occasionally you see a structure of stars that is shaped a bit like an X. Uh, uh, it probably is really two cones of, of stars, which are point to point. Uh, if you can imagine that. And when you see them sideways on, what you see is something that looks very much like an X-shaped structure. Um, This is uh, thought to be an association of the the detailed um, structure of stars in the centre of galaxies. And we also know that galaxies at their very centre often have a supermassive black hole. Our own galaxy does. It has a... um, something like a a 3.6 million solar mass black hole at the middle. Um, What we've never seen is an X of stars in our galaxy. And part of the reason for that is that the the dust clouds that lie between ourselves and the centre of the galaxy tend to obscure the light of stars. So what you need is something that penetrates that, and what penetrates it is infrared radiation. And if you build a telescope... With, uh, which is sensitive to infrared, and there are such telescopes, then you might, see, uh, you might see the X, and that's exactly what's happened. There is a spacecraft called WISE. Uh, I can't remember what WISE is an acronym for. <laughs> Many of my colleagues use it. Um, it's probably, oh, here we are, Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer. There you go. <laughs> WISE uh, is, a, is a spacecraft that looks at the universe, surveys the universe in infrared, and has built a map of the Milky Way galaxy, which clearly shows this X-shaped structure at the middle. That sort of ties in with work that's been done actually by some of my colleagues um, uh, in uh, in, in the Galar survey. The Galar survey is a survey of of a million stars that we're uh, undertaking with the Anglo-Australian telescope. Mm. Uh, One of the things that that some of those colleagues have, have deduced is that there is Um, our galaxy has what's called a boxy bulge, uh, and that's the technical term for it. Uh, It's a kind of peanut-shaped 
uh, region near the centre, which is thought to be caused by the fact that our galaxy has what we call a bar in the middle. That's a, a, basically a linear feature. We see these commonly in other spiral galaxies. This, you see the, the bulge and then there's, there's a, this sort of linear shape to it, which we call the bar, and the spiral arms come off the end of the linear shape. We believe that the boxy bulge that we can see from our vantage point in the Milky Way is evidence of, uh, of, a, of a, a bar in our spiral, not one that you can lean up against and order drinks, but one that <laughs> basically looks like a bar magnet. I guess that's where it comes from. But, and, and so I think um, it's fair to say that the X-shaped structure is, is one consequence of that. It's also telling the same story, that we've got this uh, curious feature in the middle of our galaxy that, whose, whose gravity influences the orbits of stars in that region. Mm. So very interesting stuff. This is a study that's really in its infancy, and we will find out more uh, about the X in the centre of our galaxy, one that I'm following with great interest because I'm very interested in the structure and history of our own galaxy. I, I suppose studying our own galaxy is all the more difficult because we're in it. Yeah. Uh, it's easier for us to see galaxies other than our own because we can see them in their full structure, but we, we can't look at our own from the outside looking in because we're amongst it. It's, it's impossible. It, it, that's right. I, I've always... Um, sort of likened it to trying to draw a map of Sydney from, you know, the corner of Pitt Street and <laughs> Ridge Street or something. Because you, you've, you've got, you know, if you were trying to do that, you, you'd see your own vicinity and then it all merges into buildings that you can't see through. The galaxy, our galaxy is a bit like that. Mm. We do have ways of penetrating the dust. Infrared is one way. Uh, radio waves are another. Back in the 50s, we saw the first radio maps of our galaxy that actually uh, show the spiral structure. So you can do a little bit, but we can never see a portrait of our galaxy from the outside like we do with some of these other beautiful spiral galaxies in the universe. Of course, the thing that would have made this story just a little bit better is if they detected it with X-rays. <laughs> I'm sure they'll find that. You know, the X-rays come from the um, the uh, accretion disk. Uh, that's the disk of material spiraling into the black hole at the centre. So there will be X-rays coming from there, but they might not show up the X structure. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Yeah. <laughs> this is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with astronomer Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Now our uh, final topic today, Fred, is uh, is a rather serious one. And when we're starting to talk long haul space travel, sending humans to Mars, for example, we're talking a long time in space. We're talking probably a couple of years on a mission like that, or up to a couple of years. But uh, they've run into a, a little bit of a snag that's been talked about over the last week or two, and that is the effect of zero gravity on the human eye. And it does appear that if you're uh, in space for a long period of time and exposed to zero G, it can have a rather detrimental effect on your capacity to see. And when you're talking a couple of years in space, that's that's got to be a worry. And they draw the example of an astronaut named John Phillips, who in 2005 was working on the International Space Station and, and ran into some, some real trouble. Uh, that's right, yes. So Phillips, um, like uh, most uh, space station astronauts, was up there for, I think it's six months. It's normally a six-month stint. Mm. One or two have done a year. Um, but when he got back to Earth, he, he realised that his sight was had deteriorated. And he went and saw an optometrist who said, um, well, basically, your vision is is becoming impaired it's um it, it it is blurred and this seems to be um it seems to be a consequence of 
physiological changes that take place in the eye itself as a result of zero gravity. We, we know of other effects of zero gravity on the, on the human body. The, um, uh, you know, the classic one is osteoporosis. Your, your, your bones start to lose their, um, you, you know, they, they, they start becoming brittle. They, they lose their uh, flexibility. And, uh, and uh, it, it's probably because we're not placing the same stresses on them. But to understand why the uh, region around the back of the retina of the eye should become distended and fatty, which is what has happened uh, to, uh, to astronaut Phillips, is, um, is, a, is, a, is a new discovery. And this is um, a new concern uh, that uh, long periods of weightlessness might lead to uh, this deterioration of our visual acuity. I, I think um, this is, I believe this is the first time this has been reported, Andrew. And there are people who've spent well over a year in space under zero gravity who have not uh, basically shown these symptoms. So it may be one of the, you know, it might be a one in a, one in a hundred or a one in a thousand kind of occurrence mm. among humans, but it's clearly one that is significant enough that needs to be followed up and, and have further studies done on it. So it seems to be an effect of... Um of zero g we've adapted to a gravity you know, a one g environment humanity has spent tens of thousands of years adapting to that uh, or even probably longer adapting to that uh, that situation that we have on earth we take ourselves out of that environment into a into a quite alien environment um yeah it's going to have an impact we already know about the 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 effect of zero g on on the human muscle it yes that's right because we're not using it as much it, it the yeah. brain goes oh well, we don't need this anymore and it it, it reduces it uh yeah, quite, that's right. quite physically reduces it yes um, indeed and, so and now we've got a situation where the eye is um is suffering because of zero g and it, it from what I've read, it's got something to do with the movement of fluid or the buildup of fluid in the in the back of the eye and and, and the brain, and it's causing all sorts of trouble. Uh, yeah, that's right. The um, uh, that you know, the, it's the the muscle wastage that that gives rise to. Uh, to the to the idea of having all these treadmills and things like that aboard the International Space Station, which ast astronauts can uh, use running to marathons in space. And indeed, space. Tim Peake ran the marathon. Yeah. That's right. Yes, he did. Um, however, if you've got something like a, a deterioration of the eye caused by zero gravity, then you are, um, you know, it's very hard to imagine how you could. Uh, do any kind of exercise that that might reduce that. There could be there could be therapies, there could be drugs that could be used, but all this to me, Andrew, is pointing towards um, what I think the space agencies have shied away from, just because it's uh, physically quite an expensive and difficult thing to do. Um, but it it, it sense, tends to suggest the idea of zero gravity, uh, sorry, of artificial gravity, mm. uh, which you would get by rotating this, um, the spacecraft. Uh, I've seen one uh, one recent proposal that involves two Antares capsules. These are these are um, capsules that may well find their way to Mars eventually. Basically, two of them tethered together uh, with a tether, and then set a, set rotating about their mutual centre of gravity, so that each of those Antares capsules has its own 
has its own gravity effectively. Yeah. Um, uh, I should have said they, their mutual centre of mass rather than their mutual centre of gravity, uh, because that's what it is. It's 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 mass that you're talking about. Uh, but if you can rotate them, then you can create, of course, a centrifugal force that that uh, essentially acts as gravity. And and that would be a controllable environment. And, and you see it portrayed in science fiction movies. Several Indeed. several so, uh, films over the years that have shown long haul space travel have had uh, a spaceship with a with a giant circular section that rotates or, or arms with with uh, accommodations on the end that rotate and, and that creates the artificial gravity and, and you can basically spend time there in what you would consider a normal environment. That's right, yes, that's right, as long as you're not looking out of the window. <laughs> yeah, but we, we're not there yet, are we, really? No, we're not, we're not there yet. No, that's right. It's, um, it, it, it is something that, yes, maybe in 50 years we'll see spacecraft that have this facility. I don't mm. So if we uh, send people to Mars in the next 10 or 15 years, whenever it will be, we won't be able to offer them artificial gravity. Um, probably not, because the technology, I think the technology has to... Uh, really has to uh, extend and improve before you're capable of doing that. I think it will come eventually, though. Um, the so it's a, it's a bit like you know if you were if you were sending astronauts to the moon now, and we've we just passed the 47th anniversary of the first uh, lunar landing Indeed. by uh, uh, um, Aldrin and Armstrong. Um, if you think of that, the the Apollo missions were that they were fantastically advanced for their time for the 1960s but looking at it now you would do things in a different way uh, i'm not saying that you would produce artificial gravity but the technology has moved on to the extent that you can miniaturize things uh, so that you can actually provide a much more benign environment for the astronauts than you than, than you did before mm. and, and i guess artificial gravity is just an extension of that Indeed. All right. Well, it's uh, it's certainly an, uh, a new problem, this, this eye issue to, to consider. Uh, and uh, let's face it, going up into space is, is not a, um, a thing you do without great risk. It, it's, it's a dangerous yeah. place. It is. It's dangerous. That's right. All right. Fred, always nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk to you, and we'll speak again soon. Indeed. Uh, that is Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for listening, as always. And, and please keep in touch. Send us your notes, your photos, your messages on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, don't forget to share our segments with your friends and uh, spread the word. And we will be back again next week with another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audioboom comes Covert. A new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.